I see some new faces. My name is Chris Cox. I uh, both get the opportunity to teach here occasionally and work for another organization called Back to Back Ministries that is focused on working with orphaned and vulnerable children internationally and then here in Cincinnati. I say that up front because almost all of my illustrations either come from Mexico um, where there's a community of youth that I love investing in or a community of uh, students who've become friends over the last two years that are here in Cincinnati. So if I just dive into one of those stories and you haven't met me before, you'll be like, who, who is this guy and what is he about? I love Jesus, I love my family, and I love being able to bring a story of hope to students who don't believe that they have a voice. Like that's kind of, in a nutshell, that's me. Uh, so I love that we're in a series around grace here at Echo and that our conversation is figuring out from some old stories what is God trying to say about grace as he ushered in a new story. So we've been focusing on passages from the Old Testament or an Old Covenant um, journey that God had with his people that was leading to a moment where there would be this Messiah who would enter into the world to bring hope and reconciliation into a story that wasn't making sense because there wasn't enough grace. There wasn't enough reconciliation. There wasn't an, an eternal opportunity for all people to embrace the grace and reconciliation to God that was sustainable. It, the stories that we hear in the Old Covenant are stories over and over where these human endeavors to either live within the story of God or to rebel against the story of God and how we see those stories playing out. And there is a consistent theme of a God of justice that is functioning within a humanity that continues to bring injustice. A God of grace that continues to function and to build relationship and to write his image onto a creation that continues to struggle to receive and to offer grace to themselves and to the world around them. A God of holiness that continues to try to illustrate what it looks like when his image of holiness is written onto his humanity and that we see that that Holiness continues to fall short and to be unattainable. Enter a story of Moses, this beautiful story that has a holy leader of God that brings humanity out of exile in this story, like brings a people made in the image of God out of exile. At one point he is even reflecting a glow of God on his face. Yet his humanity is so overwhelming that he doesn't enter the promised land because of decisions that he makes. This is, that's a tense story. It says this man who reflects the voice of God. Even at, at one point in his story where he is standing, if you know this Old Testament exile story, where he's standing and about to separate the sea and walk across it, that he is speaking in Yahweh language in first person tense as he holds a staff of the creator God that he's so intimately engaged in the creator of the world that he's using first person language. He's that intertwined with God and yet he doesn't enter the promised land on this earth. It's a tense story. It says you can get really close to God but you can 
still fail. And so in the Old Covenant, we have a lot of story of striving, of learning, of understanding, of figuring out what it looks like to participate in grace, but also to long for more of it. Because we would read this Old Covenant wanting more, left longing for Jesus, left longing for a Messiah and a Christ who is coming. So my question for myself this past week, and and now I guess to you, would be, has your guilt ever left you longing for more grace? Have you ever been so guilty that you've needed more grace, and that you've wanted more than what you felt like you had access to? This past Thursday, we hosted an event for a group of teenagers from Cincinnati, The storyline for each one of these guys is uh, one that that overwhelms me every time I hear it. It's one of loss. It's one of abuse. It's one of neglect. It's one of pain. It's one of incarceration. It's one of labeling. It's one of racism. It's, It's one of loss and separation. It's one of lies and deceit and their stories have had consequences out of the 22 young men that attended this this one day retreat a total of oh yeah 22 of them have records all of them have cases that are being managed by Hamilton County none of them have a father in their life All of them have spent significant amounts of time either in residential care, group home, or multiple foster opportunities. A group of men that are broken, protected, and ready to attack. And so we put them in a van and drove them an hour and a half to this home in Adams County. If you've ever been to West Union... If you don't know where I'm talking about, there's a reason. There's, it, there's nothing close to it. These 22 African-American men drove past five Confederate flags on their way to this house that were f- flying proudly for all of the houses as we got there. They got out of the van and they went through this gated area into this. It's a multi-million dollar house that a, uh, a lawyer from Cincinnati built as his respite place. Like he would just go away to take breaks and he decided that I don't want it anymore. I want to give it to a nonprofit. Can you guys use it? And we're like, this will be a great place for us to do retreats and to get away and to have silence. And there's no Wi-Fi. There's no cell range. There's nothing. So these young men pull in and they get out after seeing the flags. And they see the house. And they enter the house. And they're completely dysregulated believing like this is where you bring, in one boy's words, this is where you bring people like me to do bad things to them. We're like, really? Why would you say that? And he's like, because did you see the flags? I can't even call my mama. You like, why am I here? And they're so they're just heightened with just upset, frustration, anxiety. We knew that was going to come, so we tried to create an opportunity of peace immediately by offering a couple of things. An invitation to just journey through the house. Just go. 
if the door is open, you're allowed to look in it. You're allowed to see what's in there. And the campus is the same thing. So we've got guys going out in canoes and paddle boats. And they're looking in this house. And one of the young men decides that he's going to go into this bedroom that has in this loft. And it overlooks with these sliding doors. It overlooks the rest of the house. And he's going to claim that is now his room for the day. So he goes in, takes his shirt off. Hangs it in the closet, takes his shoes off, puts them on a pedestal, and takes a nap in the bed. We've been there 10 minutes, and he's asleep in the, in the master bedroom. Just overwhelmed by the drive. And as we get ready to start the session, he just groggily comes out, opens the sliding doors, and looks out, and is like, what are y'all doing in my house? <laughs> and we look up and laugh at him, and we're like, what? We didn't know you were asleep up there. Do you want to come down and join us? And he's like... Do you have my permission to be here? Like he's completely in character playing like this is his house. And our response is, why are you half naked? And he's like, oh, sorry, let me get dressed and I'll be down in a minute. I'm glad you're here. Like he's completely character this thing up. And he comes downstairs and he sits on the couch. He makes his little brother move out of his seat. He's acting like he's the king of, the, of his now castle. And he sits down and he says, so what's on the agenda for today? He found safety in finding this like separate identity that this is my home in a dream world where I had actually had a, a fair opportunity to, to live the life that I wanted to live. And in this other world where I could just have this loft bedroom and take my shirt off and hang it in the closet and walk around in a pair of shorts because I can. And he sat down to start hearing the story of the day. We got through the first session and by the second session I had, I had set out this box of fun toys because that was the second way we wanted to integrate everyone into the space is to let them know you're safe here and we're glad you're trusting us with this day. You didn't have to. We want to just listen to your voice and we want to share back with you. And we did that in two ways. One, I like to bring free stuff that I know the guys will want to win when we play games. So it all needs to be Nike. If it's not Nike or Jordan, it's not going to leave my little toy box. So it's all Nike socks, Nike shirts, Nike basketballs, Nike footballs, all kinds of little toys that we have there. And second, because we knew the rule of the house was no shoes in the house, we said we can't just tell these guys to just come in, leave their shoes outside, which are very important to this group of young men. Like you do not leave your shoes outside because someone might take them. And so we're like, we need a safe place to put their shoes and we bought them all Nike slides to put on when they came in the, in the house. So if you know, it's their sandals. And so they all come in and there's boxes of sandals sitting in front of them. And they're going, who gets the sandals? Who gets the slides? Wait, are there going to be a pair of slides for me? And we're like, do you want us to tell you the story about the slides? And they're like, yes. So we tell them about the slides. They jump up. They all put slides on their feet. And now they're just all in. They just believe that this is their spot. They go to sit back down. They're even on the bottom of their boxes. Like they're writing their name. And they're putting their other shoes in their box. To make sure that they have protection and all this. We're just seeing this whole thing happen. And we're like this is awesome. They're bought in. And then I look to my left. And I pick out this one specific t-shirt. To be the ultimate prize of the day. And I look over and the t-shirt's gone. In the midst of us handing out the slides and sizing everyone up for them, my shirt got lost. And we had a conundrum. Because we have 
over 20 boys in a room who have been blamed for everything all the time. But something went missing. Guilt or grace? How do we approach life when someone steals something from us? How do we approach life when we steal something from someone else? How do we approach life when something that we have value in goes missing? How do we approach life when someone who has all the power wants what's ours and they take it? Grace and guilt. That's our conversation today. First Kings chapter 21 is where we're going to pull the story from. This is an interesting story. This is not a hopeful story. This is a very weird story. Here we go. <laughs> chapter 21 verse 1. Sometime later, this is sometime later after a confrontation between Elijah the prophet and as they would refer later, Ahab and Jezebel, they're his enemies. Ahab actually greets Elijah in this text of saying, hello my enemy you have found me. Like they, they're on first name basis of like, we're against each other. Ahab and Je Jezebel are the king, queen over this northern nation of Israel. Jezebel is a foreigner. She has brought a belief system into the nation of Israel that does not align with the belief system around Yahweh God. She has brought in all types of religious fervor for this God Baal. She has indoctrinated her husband into it. They have hundreds and hundreds of prophets prior to chapter 21. There's a famous showdown between Elijah and the prophets where he asks for fire to come down from heaven. He gets very sarcastic in their inability to call fire down from heaven as they mutilate themselves, dance around an altar, and Elijah comes in response to them and asks water to be thrown on the altar, and then he prays a prayer to Yahweh. And fire comes down, sets the altar on fire. The nation believes, and the 300 prophets of Baal are no more. They cease to exist. Elijah outruns Ahab home. Very interesting. He outruns a chariot, girds up his loins is what the Bible says. Picks up his, uh, his pants and outruns a chariot. Gets back, has a note from Jezebel that says... I'm going to kill you. Elijah, exhausted, overwhelmed, takes to the mountains, where another notorious story where God comes to him in the whisper. Some would say this is Elijah's darkest moment, that he's just feeling alone, completely ostracized from any community, and that he believes that he is the only voice of God, and yet it's still not enough. It's just never enough. Some have taken that passage and even translated it as a moment where Elijah was considering throwing himself off the mountain. He's in that dark of a place. And the God whispers to his spirit and brings him back into a place 
of alignment of saying it's still not over. How do you know that you're alone? I am with you. And so then we have chapter 21 where it says, Sometime later, after all of those events have happened, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. That's important just to say that it was next to Ahab's second house. He hadn't just stayed in the first palace. He had actually created a second palace in Jezreel in this fertile area And he was at this second house. So he already has two houses. He has two palaces, two places filled with all of the stuff that a king would have. All of the garages filled with all of the chariots and all of the horses and all of the cool toys. But that wasn't enough. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. Seems fair. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard, which is not what he said. Jezebel, his wife, said, this is how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters on Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. Guilt starts with two things. One, it starts with desire. The great king Ahab stands up in his palace and looks out and sees the one thing that he doesn't have, a vineyard. The only other reference to the the tension between this vineyard type place and a vegetable garden actually happens in Deuteronomy chapter 10 where it's an illustration of the difference of the gardens of Egypt that the Israelites were going to lead which were man-made, fertilized by man, irrigated by man on the backs of slaves and the promised land that would be an inheritance that is waiting for a nation that is going to be freed. So here's the tension, right? Is that Ahab looks out and says, I'm in charge of the people who have been given an inheritance by Yahweh. And instead, I want to recreate Egypt for them. I would rather take the fertile promised land vineyard of God who has given it through the promises that were bestowed to Joshua onto the people. So Naboth is saying, I can't give you this because it's, I didn't buy it. I didn't earn it. I was given this by the grace of the God who led our forefathers out of Egypt. When we entered into this land, Grace was given to my family and we were entrusted to this land. So I'm sorry, King, it's not mine to give. It's like God's and he gave it to us and to our family. And there's actually laws that say you can't take it. Like I can't give you, I can't give away my grace. I just have to nurture it 
and cultivate what was given to me. So you're asking me for something that is not mine to give. I'm sorry. And part of why Ahab is so upset and goes home and lays in his bed and cries is because he knows this law. He knows that he doesn't have this kind of power. He knows he can't just take because he knows this God that it was given from. But Jezebel doesn't care. It starts with desire. I want something. I can't have it. I'm upset about it. And it moves to deceit. Guilt is the product of desire and deceit. Ahab is crying on his bed. I can't have it. The deceiver enters the room and says, why can't you have it? You're the king. Are you kidding me? These people don't do what you say? If they don't do what you say, then what is your power really? Leave it to me. I will show you how to run a kingdom. Let me write a letter. And so she wrote a letter and said, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a time of fasting. So the community responds and goes, "Uh uh-oh, something went wrong. That means that we are going to be ushering something out of our community because something happened here and it's wrong. She partnered some leaders of the community who must have at best been apathetic, and then she found two deceitful men who were willing to bring Naboth into the fasting and say, we can't stop this fast until we figure out what has happened. What is the wrong that needs to be righted? And the two men say, this man, this man is standing against God, and he's standing against this community. And they had these trumped up charges against Naboth. And then the response to that was the community said, well, then we have to get justice back. We have to stop this issue where God is unhappy with us. So they took Naboth outside and they picked up rocks and they threw them at him until he was dead. And then Jezebel comes back in and says, look, Naboth, and then later in Chronicles it would say, or in Second Kings it would actually say that it was not only Naboth but all of his sons. So there's no one that can claim this land. A criminal was convicted He is dead. The land is up. Go get it. I took care of it. Desire met with deceit will always lead to destruction. And we have it here. The promised land of inheritance that was being nurtured by generations becomes the vegetable garden established on spilt blood. We don't have time to insert all of the historical stories that this sounds like. But on Thursday, I was sitting in a room filled with young men who were the victims of it. Something that they were a part of generations ago something that their father's fathers were a part of, someone else took a look at and said, I want to make that a vegetable garden. And they may have not stoned them, but we have a historical trail of our version of it because desire and deceit always lead to destruction. And destruction brings guilt. Enter Elijah back into a conversation with his enemy. And it says in verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite 
Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. Right there, Elijah has to go, are you kidding me, him again? This never goes well. I need to take my medication with me. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah when Elijah got there, so you have found me, my enemy. Oh, I have found you. He answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Bisha, son of Ahijah. Because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and, birds, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. Then we get a little side note. Never, there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. And I, as, an, as a witness to this conversation, would say, but it's too late, Ahab. You just had a line destroyed so that you could have zucchini. Too late. You can rip your robes as much as you want to. You can tear apart your gowns. You can put ash on your face. And you can wear as much sackcloth as you want in humility. But it is, you should have stopped this. You were entrusted with your people to watch them and to nurture them and to love them. And instead, you incited a riot to throw stones and destroy the humans that you were responsible for. That's not okay. Enjoy the licking of the dogs on your bones. That, that's, that's me. That's the justice of, like, Chris inside that says, no, 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 no. You don't get off that easy. Do, do you? Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I, w I wonder if there's a pause right there, and Elijah is like, sadly, Yes. And I know what you're about to do. And I don't like it. I was really looking forward to the dogs. I, I like was ready to watch as that happened. And that, mm-hmm, Jezebel, tell me that, mm-hmm, please. Have you noticed? And Elijah's like, yeah, I noticed. And you're gonna be that same God that came to me in the whisper, aren't you? Hmm. Because he has humbled himself. I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. 
Again, we're in an old covenant story where there is not this offering of unrelenting eternal grace to Ahab that does not influence the generations that are coming before him. Like we, we're still left longing, right? We're left longing for a, a Messiah. We're left longing for a, well, can't this just not be on my kids? Can't this not happen to them? Can't this not happen next? We're left longing, wanting more in that if we're Ahab of going, okay. But we're also going to, like, if he, if he receives that, we're also going to see that Ahab's not going to go, you know what, I would rather you just take me and leave my boys alone. Ahab's not going to die on that sword. He's not going to go, thank you, Yahweh God, but I would rather you take me and spare them. And so he's like, whoo, yeah, get to live another day. Now about that vegetable garden, that kind of grace doesn't make any sense to me. That God would say, do you see? That even after his desire led to this deceit, led to this destruction, that his authentic humility will incite my grace to at least extend the margin before there is punishment. And all of his sons did receive this punishment. And if you read 2 Kings chapter 9, you will see that Jezebel got thrown out of a window by her own servants, these two eunuchs that were standing next to her. A prophet came and said, who's with her? And they said, oh, about time, and threw her out the window. And she landed on the ground and was no more. And then the dogs came, and by the time they had gone inside and eaten some dinner and come back out, there was nothing left of her. The Old Testament's like, who needs Game of Thrones? Right? Like, you got... Dogs eating flesh. That's crazy. It extended the gap of grace for Ahab and gave him an opportunity of which he did not move into a kingdom of grace. He accepted a moment of grace. But yet, in this story, there's another picture that has happened. Right? There's grace and guilt. There's this guilt that leads to the grace out of my fearful response that I got caught. And then there's the grace that says I recognize the inheritance that I've been given and I will nurture and guide and protect what has been given to me. And that's Naboth in the beginning. That when the offer comes to him, the offer is really, do you want to continue to embrace the inheritance that you did not earn by being a part of this kingdom? Or would you like to sell out? What's God's grace worth? Is really what Ahab is asking him in the beginning. What's God's grace worth to you? Is it another vineyard? Is it an amount of money? What can I use to buy off God's grace over your family. And the boss says, there's nothing. I can't, I'm, I'm bound to this grace. I, have, I am a steward of the inheritance of what God has given to me. And so I am bound to that. And so even when the stones were coming, Naboth and his family didn't stop and say, wait, time out, time out. Bring Ahab down here. What's the deal now? We, we'll take even like half a vineyard. He didn't say that. He took the rocks as he embraced the grace of his inheritance. That's tension in the story. He did not seek justice. 
He dwelled in and held on to it in spite of his circumstances. We have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with that as being part of the story of God. That the grace is about the opportunity to inherit the kingdom of God in spite of our circumstances. Not to decide daily on what God's grace is worth and at what point we would sell out in order to protect our vineyard. Grace is an invitation. Guilt leads to destruction. So we're looking at this empty box where the stuff is missing. We already know who took it. It wasn't the only thing that got stolen that day. Later, one of the coaches decided to leave his iPhone on a counter. Bad move. That ended up on its way to a Kroger to be traded in for cash later that day. It's a hard group of kids that we're working with. But as I looked at the box and I looked at the crowd, I thought, I'm so tempted to say, so whoever stole my t-shirt, the dogs are going to eat your flesh. In the middle of nowhere, Ohio. But that's not grace. And I want them to have the same inheritance that I have. And so the conversation ended like this. I want to teach this next session, but I'm a little sad. One of the other boys like, why are you sad? We need to hear the end of the story. Because I always like leave you to the end of the story for the very end. And like, you, you got to stay through session three or else you don't know what happened to the kid. Always. And they're like, we, we don't want you to be sad. What's wrong? And I'm like, well, I was here and I had a shirt. And I wanted one of you to get the shirt, but then I lost the shirt. I don't know what I did with my shirt, but it's gone. It went missing. I lost it. It's on me for losing. I didn't take care of it very well. And this kid stands up from the back. The kid who's not wearing a shirt, who thinks he owns the house, stands up. He's like, oh, I saw that shirt. And I'm like, where did you see my shirt? And he's like, it was hanging upstairs in the bedroom closet. He's like, I'll get it for you. Don't worry, I'll make you whole. And he walks up to his bedroom that he has claimed for himself, past his shoes, and he opens the closet where there are two shirts hanging. One that he had taken off when he got there and the other one that somehow ended up hanging next to it with new tags on it. And he takes that shirt off of the hanger and he walks it down the staircase and he's like, is this the one you're looking for? And all the guys in the room are like, I want that shirt. That should be my shirt. And they're like, how are we going to win that shirt? Who's going to get that shirt? And he walks it up and he hands it to me. And he walks back to sit down, sit down. And everyone in the room knows exactly what happened to that shirt and how it got in that closet because there's only been one person allowed in that room. He made sure that no one else got in that room because he like claimed it and threatened to fight anyone who tried to take his room. Everyone knows. And he turns around. And as he turns around, I'm like, hey, we love honesty here. 
and I'm just glad to get my shirt back. Did, did you want it? And he turned around and was like, after that? I'm like, yeah, man, you don't have a shirt on. I need you to wear something. And as I throw him the shirt, the room changed. And everyone in that room looked and thought, huh, even he gets rewarded? All right, I'm in. That's grace that overcomes guilt. I got to watch it on a young man's face and I was just honored to be there and be part of it. What do you need this week? Do you need a little more grace in your inheritance because you're being tempted with desire for something that you don't have, someone that you don't have, and it's leading you to deceit? There's grace for that. Have you destroyed some relationships, some partnerships, some opportunities? It may not seem fair, but there's grace for that. When you open the door, is someone else's vineyard outside of your window? There's grace before it even starts. I think that's what it looks like in Ephesians when we're encouraged that through Christ we are invited to take up our inheritance. Because there's grace for us. Not because of what we have, but because of whose children we are. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this week. Thank you for these stories like Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah and the Baath that are hard, unfair stories sprinkled with injustice and frustration, but overwhelmed with your grace. Help us depend on that a little bit more this week and encourage us in your name, amen.